All right, 2 Corinthians 10, John chapter 10. We're going to do, we're going to try to add a little to what we did this morning, add some of the information that we did not have access to because I forgot that we didn't have internet. So now I copied everything in a place where I have access to everything. All right, so let's remind ourselves quickly of what happened. It all started because of a new album that came out that the name of the album was Hellfire and Damnation. And the, the title track, Hellfire and Damnation, had a song about an ongoing battle between God and Satan and how we're kind of caught in the middle. When I listened to it, it made me immediately think of an idea for a podcast, so I called it Heavy Metal Theology. And I basically I challenged the, podcast, the listeners to the podcast to create a list of all the things Satan, all the things they think Satan can do, all the things that they have been told Satan can do, and then look in scripture at what Satan is actually said he can do. And then try to, you know, come up with an actual way. So I kind of just threw it out as a podcast episode, wait and see if I got a response or didn't get a response and didn't possibly move on. All right. Well, then I got an email from someone who was listening to sermons on, he, he did a search for like power of Satan or Satan's power. And so he sent me a link to a sermon entitled, How Satan Gets in Your Head. All right. So he sent that to me and then I said, well, I will review the sermon and analyze it, critique it and see what we can find because it's about Satan and we just did something. So it relates to the first thing I did and, you know, I had some idea that this could possibly turn into something long. I had no idea. It turned into four plus hours of review. And by the time I got to the end of the sermon, I felt like I needed a trip to a liquor store because the thing was an absolute just, I don't know what was going on. In fact, it really kind of made me angry. Not so much the theology part, but the part where he talks about the mind and emotions because he just said things that are just, absolutely false. It's just false. If you, if you do any research on the brain and how the brain works and how, where emotions flow from, like he was completely just misrepresenting at all, but you're telling people very important things about how they think and their emotions, which could lead people to who knows what. And so it was, and then he went on to, to, to go so far to say in a sermon that a no evil thought no evil thought arises from the heart of a true believer. So if you get an evil thought, it didn't come from inside. Satan put it in your head. Well, if Satan put it in your head, well, then you can't trust any of your thoughts because if Satan is in your head, how can you trust any thought? You can't. If Satan, if Satan, and so then I put forth the hypothesis, if Satan can put thinking in our head, we can't even trust the interpretation of the Bible because he could be giving us the wrong interpretation. In fact, he could have come along and gave us the thought that Jesus was the eternal son of God when in reality he wasn't, so we're believing in a false gospel. How would we know? Because if Satan can get in your head, what can you trust? Nothing. So the whole thing is just like, it's, it's just the whole concept was ridiculous. So I was just so frustrated. But to make matters worse, the text of the sermon was 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's just go through this quickly. Uh, we covered this this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 quickly. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk 
in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So that was the text. The only interesting thing about that text is who is not mentioned. Satan is not mentioned. So I did a little work. I went back to chapter 9. Guess who's not mentioned? Satan. Chapter 8, Satan is not mentioned. Chapter 7, Satan is not mentioned. Chapter 6, Satan is not mentioned. Chapter 5, Satan is not mentioned. You have to go all the way back to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and then you have to go to 2 Corinthians 2 to find Satan. Now, after chapter 10, he shows up in chapter 11 and chapter 12, but the point is, he's not there. Now, he could have went to the earlier part of Corinthians to try to pull Satan over. He could have went to the later part. and try to, But he did not go anywhere in 2 Corinthians. Instead, he went to the very famous passage of John chapter 10. So we can go to John chapter 10. And he went to John 10, and guess what he did? He completely ignored anything about John chapter 10. He just reached over. He read verse 10. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and destroy. And he's like, that's Satan. So Satan gets into your head, and what does he do? He, he steals, he kills, and he destroys. And if Satan gets into your head, he can get so in your head that he renders you powerless. He can get so in your head that he can enslave you to do his purpose. Now, of course, if, that, if Satan can get to your mind and do, do that, well, then I don't know how we can accomplish anything. And so then it gets all weird. But my frustration was, even hermeneutically, how do you go to John 10 and just reach over, find Satan, and pull him to 2 Corinthians 10? I need some kind of her- hermeneutical reasoning. There's no cross-referencing going on there because Satan is not mentioned in Corinthians. So, then, so how do you, like, okay, so I'm already frustrated. But then I even got more frustrated because it's John 10.10. 10. John 10.10 10 is probably one of the most misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. Because there is no Satan in John 10.10. I don't know why anyone thinks Satan is there. He's not there. Even though I was taught it in Bible college, I was taught it in seminary. He's not there. So I decided to put forth the hypotheses that, and I remember what I just said, put forth the hypotheses that Satan is not in John 10.10. So what did we do? Well, we started doing a couple of things, all right? Now, um, first thing we did, as when you look at John 10, 10, what is the first thing we noticed? That it's in the middle of a dialogue that's clearly all the words of Jesus, especially if your Bible has the letters in red, right? John, John 10, 10, or John 10, verse 1, Jesus is speaking. He, he stops in 5, but then immediately Jesus starts speaking again, and that dialogue continues all the way down to verse 18. So immediately I'm like, well, wait a minute, John 10, 10 is a part of a bigger discussion. Where does this discussion begin? Well, we know it begins in chapter 10, verse 1, but the issue is, does it carry back into chapter 9? I remember in church history, there was great debate. Some believe there is no continuation of the narrative from 9 to 10. Others say there is a continuation. I argued that the continuation is proven in chapter 10, verse 
verse uh, 21, because it says, others said, there are, these are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Now, what are they talking about since nothing has happened in chapter 10 of Jesus opening what? Blind eyes. So that takes us right back to chapter 9. I believe then that Jesus' entire dialogue is to people, and it has something to do with someone's eyes being made open or, or a blind man being made to see. So then I'm like, okay, this is a continuation. So we went back to chapter 9. All right, everybody remember all of this? Okay, so we started looking at chapter 9, and we started asking ourselves uh, some questions, all right? Uh, we saw, or at least we think, that if there is a connection between chapter 10 and chapter 9, Jesus is possibly contrasting himself with someone. And it sounds like someone he may have some negative things to say about. Because if you look in chapter 10, he starts talking about things like, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, verily I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. And he has some negative things to say about someone or, so, or, or groups of people. And it seems that Jesus is drawing a contrast between himself and someone negative, meaning that there's some kind of conflict going on. So I argued that if we're going to look at this narrative, we've got to figure out where the narrative begins. Once we figure out where the narrative begins, we have to identify the antagonist and the protagonist. Right? So we went back to chapter 9, verse 1, and we start finding the narrative. As we go through the narrative, it's going to be very quickly to determine the antagonist is who? The Pharisees. The protagonist is Jesus. So we, that, there's going to be a conflict and there's going to be a contrast between those two. So then we outlined chapter 9, right? All the way into chapter 10. So chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 the event that causes the conflict. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 is the event that causes the conflict. What is the event? Starts in chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. All right? There's a discussion about sin. Jesus does this weird thing of spitting on the ground. He makes clay. He puts it in his eyes, tells him to go wash. And what happens? The man came seeing. All right, that's the event that's going to cause the conflict. A man is healed who was blind, but now he can see. That's the, the event that's going to cause the conflict. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, these are the questions and confusion before the conflict. And people are asking, wait, is that the guy? I don't think that's the guy. What's happening? Who did this? How did this happen? All right, those are the questions. Chapter 9, 13 through 34 is the conflict. And, and guess where the conflict begins? Look at verse 13 carefully. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And how does this conflict end? They excommunicate the blind, the guy who can see. They kick him out. Hey, you were healed? You gotta go. We don't want healed people here. Okay? You gotta go. They kick him out. They excommunicate him, all right? I'm using that term. Then in chapter 9, verses 35, 41, when Jesus hears that this guy got kicked out, he goes, and now, instead of addressing his physical blindness, Jesus begins to address his spiritual condition. Not only does he address the spiritual condition of the blind man, who else does he address the spiritual condition of? The Pharisees. Look at verse 40. 
And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, are we blind also? They're obviously not referencing their physical sight, correct? And what does Jesus say? If you are blind, you should have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remaineth. Jesus is referring to their spiritual condition and he refers to the spiritual condition and using what, what uh, metaphor? Blindness. All right? So there is the, the event that causes the conflict. There's the questions and confusions about before the conflict. There's the conflict which goes from chapter 9, 13 to 34. The spiritual condition which goes from chapter 9, 35 to 41. And then what do we have in chapter 10? We have the response. And Jesus lays out the response by doing what? Giving, we will reference them as three parables. The three parables go from chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, chapter 10, 7 through 10, and chapter 10, 11 through 18. All right? Now, when we look there, who, we, that, there's, it's almost, it makes no sense for Satan to just show up in the middle of this, right? Because if Jesus somehow makes this about Satan, who is, who would he be taking his eyes off of? The Pharisees. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees about the Pharisees. All right. So let's just look quickly at chapter 10. We didn't do this this morning. We're going to walk through this relatively quick. Right. And so just so that we can get an idea of what he's talking about. All right. So contextually, what can we clearly dogmatically assert? That the conflict is with whom? Jesus and the Pharisees. The antagonist are the Pharisees. The protagonist is Jesus. All right? That's the conflict. All right? That's the conflict here. Jesus is stepping in. You could say that conflict is between the Pharisees and the blind man, but Jesus, in a sense, kind of steps in. He just, he's like, look, guys, I don't know what you want to say. I was blind. Now I can see. Leave me alone. Right? But Jesus steps into the situation because Jesus is the one who's going to provide the response. And let's go break, break this down. Verses 1 through 5 is the first parable. Okay, here we go. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, of the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So, what is he contrasting here? The shepherd with whom? Thief and a robber. Right? He's, there's a contrast here. Okay? To him the porter openeth, and the sheep heareth his voice, and calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And, and a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. So in a roundabout way, what is Jesus saying? I'm the shepherd... And the sheep follow me. The people who, they don't know their voice, they're not going to follow because they're thieves and robbers. They're questionable. And he's a roundabout way saying, you spiritual leaders, you're the thief and the robbers. And they're not listening to you. So who did the blind man listen to? He listened to Jesus. Who was he not listening to? The Pharisees. And they kicked him out, showing that they don't care about the sheep. See the kind of the contrast? All right? At least, look, 
you can try to do a million other things with that. And you can try, because a lot of times when people preach chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, they start adding, well, this represents this and this represents this. Don't make it complicated. This is a direct response to what happened in chapter 9. All right? I, even if, if, if you, yeah, there's just no way to say that it isn't. This uh, parable spake Jesus unto, who's the them? Pharisees. But they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. What does chapter 6 prove? That there's two, there's a blind man and there's a blind group. The blind man was given physical sight. The blind man was also given spiritual sight. The Pharisees are able to see physically, but they are blind spiritually, and they have not been given spiritual sight because they don't even understand this parable. I will argue there are many men standing behind the pulpit with seminary educations, and guess what? They don't understand the text because they apply it to everything other than the Pharisees. What happens in verse 7? Then Jesus said unto them. Who's the them? The Pharisees. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All right, now Jesus is going to get very, he's, he's not, the first parable, you could say he was a little vague. Now, is he vague now? I am the door. Now, what happens if you don't come to the door? Go look at the first parable. You're a thief and a robber. So they have to come through him. That's not going to make them happy. Right? Agreed? Okay. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. All that came before me are thieves and robbers. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the corrupt spiritual leaders that had come to Israel in the past. And the people aren't listening to them. Right? If I am the door by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now Jesus is getting really specific. You've got to come through me. They're not going to like that. In fact, he says you have to come through me to be saved. What does he say in the next verse? The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to be destroyed. I come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. The thief, the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy, those are the, the religious leaders. Why would he introduce Satan here? If he introduced Satan, then the Pharisees could say what? Huh? Not talking about us. No. You guys. In fact, he's used the, the idea of a thief and robbers multiple times already, has he not? Now, some will say, well, he goes from plural to singular. He's driving the point home to each individual. If you're not coming to him and you're, and you're doing this to the sheep, you're a thief, you're, you're, you're a murderer, you're doing these things. But Jesus contrasts himself. He doesn't come to kill, steal, and destroy. What does he come? To give life. Give life to whom? The sheep. And he demonstrated that by doing what? Healing the blind man, and not only healing the blind man physically, healing the blind man spiritually, and by healing him spiritually, he just gave him life and life more abundant. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. 
He's like, hey, I'm the good shepherd. I'm taking care of the sheep. The hireling doesn't care about the sheep. And guess how they demonstrated they didn't care about the sheep? They kicked out the blind man, leaving the blind man vulnerable. Now, he's using a metaphor of a sheep being vulnerable. What's the predator to a sheep? A wolf. Now, some may want to apply Satan to that, but I don't know if you necessarily need to do that. He's just using a metaphor. If the sheep isn't being taken care of by the religious leaders, they become vulnerable. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and I am known of mine. And the father knoweth me, even so knoweth I the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Now who could that be referencing? The Gentiles, right? That must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one sheep shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down that I have the power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my father. And then we know exactly what's going on because there's a division again amongst the Jews. And many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. And why hear ye him? They're like, this guy, this guy's he's the one who's got a devil, right? They, they don't perceive that he's talking about the devil. They're offended because they're talking about them, <laughs> right? Does that make sense? If he was talking about the devil, they may have been what? Well, blame the devil. We don't care. He's speaking of them. Who are they? They are the thieves. They are the robbers. They're the hirelings. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. Right? You see the contrast? And then we know exactly then. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Meaning they know all of this relates right back to what? The conflict. Now, just a general reading there should do what? Remove any doubt. This is not about Satan. It should remove any doubt. But, we, now, we did a little bit more there than we did this morning. Now we're going to add what was supposed to be the dramatic conclusion this morning, that it did not happen. Because I got ready to open this, and it was like, you have no internet connection. I'm like, no! Okay, so I tried to play it off as much as possible, but now we're going to go through this, all right? Now, this is going to kind of take what I just did, and it's going to kind of summarize it in its own language. What I'm borrowing from is from a a paper written by Biola University, all right? Now, they're going to try to track down the history of how Satan ended up in John chapter 10. And that's going to be an interesting little bit of church history. So we'll do that at the end. But they're going to offer their explanation. All right? And we're going to see what happened. But there's a lot here. All right? So I'm going to just go through each paragraph. And we'll go through this quickly. Some of the... Well, there's a couple... There's some here that we did not cover. And I was going to bring that in at the conclusion. Because the rest of this is going to be somewhat similar to what I did. But this is their first paragraph. In In Jesus' shepherd discourse in John 10... Jesus contrasts himself with the thief. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. If you hear this verse quoted in a sermon or see people use this verse online, you will usually hear that the thief is Satan. 
But is that what Jesus meant? Right? I will argue that if you get online and just look up sermons on John 10, 10, you're going to hear Satan, 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 over and 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 over again. All right? And the reason that happens is we have too many churches who don't want to do theology. They just want to teach theology. And if all you want to do is teach theology, then as a pastor, you go sit in your office. You know what you do? You find your favorite commentary. You steal their outline. You flip it around a little bit. You make it your own. And you just rehash what's already been said over and over and over and over. And all you need to do is make sure you put it in three nice little points, a good intro, a three-point body, and a good conclusion, good good eye contact, don't raise your voice or scream, and tell everyone that they're wonderful, and everyone will love you and say, wasn't church so good? We studied the Bible. No, you didn't. You didn't study anything. You got a sermon. And sermons, in most cases, are not actual study of Scripture. All right. All you got to do is figure out what uh, commentary your pastor is using, and you can probably get every sermon just knowing what passage by going to look at their commentary. And if it's a reform, or if it's some in, in certain circles, all you got to do is find their MacArthur commentary, and it's just MacArthur, 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 MacArthur. That's not the way it should be. We should come to study what the scriptures. And guess what we should do? We should challenge and question, and never rely on past understanding for present study. Because if you were wrong in the past, that will only guarantee you're going to be God in the present. That's why you got to forget everything. Look, if, I'm, if I was rehashing what I've already learned, we would never have changed anything in this church. Now, a lot of people would be glad about that because we probably would have more people here. But guess what? That's not growing. That's not learning. So we have to challenge things. So all of John 10, verses 1 through 18 hangs together as a single discourse, split up into three connected shepherd parables. Now, I do believe it hangs together as a single discourse, and I do agree that it's three parables. I don't know if I would have used the word parable myself, but look at chapter 10 and look at the word where the parable's actually used. I think it's verse 7, I believe. Is it 7? Six. What? This parable spake. So I will argue then, okay, I think it is three separate parables. Okay. I don't know if I would have used it because I didn't get kind of like, okay, I guess it is a parable, but I, I kind of see it a little different. But okay. I think we can get that. Okay. Now, there, there you go. It, to me, it's more of a metaphor, right? It's kind of a metaphor and illustration. But, but if it's going to be described in a parabolic way, I got no problem with it. All right. So, this is what they suggest. If we want to understand what Jesus meant by thief, we need to, surprise, look at the context. Once we look at the whole discourse, it becomes clear that the thief does not refer to Satan, but to Jesus' opponents, the self-serving human leaders of Israel. Now, they don't use my terminology. I think what we immediately realize is that the thief is not Satan, we have to figure out who the protagonist and the antagonist is. The protagonist is clearly Jesus, and the antagonists are not found in chapter 10. They're found in chapter 9, and we go back to the end of chapter 9, and, and we see the Pharisees are all over it, right? They bring the blind man to whom? 
The Pharisees, what do they do with him? Kick him out. Jesus shows up on the scene. And he's like, hey. And then who does he talk to at the very end of chapter 9? The Pharisees, basically telling them that they're blind. Okay? So I think immediately we know what's going on. Now, here we go. You ready for three points? Point number one. The entire discourse in chapter 10 is a direct response to the Pharisees' mistreatment of one of Jesus' sheep, the blind man, in John chapter 9. The entire discourse is a direct response to the Pharisees' mistreatment of the blind man. Everybody got that? The entire discourse is a direct response to the Pharisees' mistreatment of one of Jesus' sheep. Or you can just say, uh, the mistreatment of the blind man. They argue there is no natural break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. In fact, that particular chapter break was probably improperly improperly placed. Well, that's a mouthful. The chapter break was probably improperly placed. In the early 1500s, a commentary says this, the person who divided the text of the gospel into chapters was not very judicious, beginning in John chapter 10. Jesus goes directly from condemning the Pharisees in chapter 9, 39 through 40, to a set of parables that contrasted his leadership with their leadership. I will argue the reason I know chapter 9 and chapter 10 are a continuation is because of chapter 10, verse 21, and them saying, wait a minute. devils don't open the eyes of the blind so immediately that tells me this is in relation to what happened in chapter 9 the text gives me I don't. we can argue all day about the chapter division I will say the text tells me I got to connect the two chapters I don't care what you want to argue about the chapter division the text tells me that alright does that make sense alright so that's number one number two each of the three parables is about a contrast between Jesus and the failed leaders. Each parable is a contrast between Jesus and the failed leaders. Each parable is a contrast between the protagonist and the antagonist. That's the contrast. Guess who's not the antagonist? Satan. He's not there. And if the contrast was between Jesus and and the antagonist, then the Pharisees wouldn't be be like, "You're, you're not talking to us. All right? Does that make sense? All right. He goes on, they go on to say, they are foolish gatekeepers who cannot tell the difference between a thief and a shepherd. They are the thieves who bring death while Jesus is the shepherd gate that brings life. Finally, they are the hirelings who abandon the sheep at the first sign of danger while Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. They don't, they don't get it. They can't see. They don't understand. Which goes on with the idea that they are blind, which is in the end of chapter 9. So each parable is a contrast. Number three. Within this particular parable, only one short paragraph is this parable. Jesus is clear that all who came before me are thieves and bandits. The thief comes only to kill 
steal, and destroy. Does everyone see that in John 10, 8 through 10? Listen, there is no hint that he has switched topics. I agree. Within a single parable, we expect the symbols to stay the same. Is that reasonable? If you're in a single parable, they have, whatever is introduced as a symbol has to stay the same, or how do you hermeneutically follow that? Well, in this verse, this represents this, but in the next verse, it represents this. That would make no sense. In fact, it would be, it would be almost hermeneutically improbable that you could even ever figure it out. Once the, the symbols are kind of established, you've got to follow that. And I think the text clearly establishes the symbols. You have the protagonist and the antagonist. The protagonist is Jesus. And he begins using pronouns like, I am. Okay, so Then you know exactly Jesus has placed himself in the story. Well, if it's contrast between I am, well, when it says he spoke to them, i got to figure out who the them is, which is the Pharisees. Therefore, Jesus is contrasting I am with the Pharisees. So therefore, the negative symbols are symbols of the Pharisees. That's just like, this is not even hard to do. You don't even need seminary or Bible college. Anybody can figure this out with just basic reading skills. And, and, and yeah, okay. The whole thing just starts getting frustrating with me, all right? Or I get frustrated with it, all right? So, within a single parable, we expect the symbols to stay the same. So, there is no reason to think that Jesus has started to talk about Satan. So, overall, the context, moving from John 9 to 10, down to the discourse, and then down to the parable in John 10, 7 through 10, makes it clear that the thief is a reference to the failed leaders of Israel. There is another approach we should take. All right? So, so far... We get what? Number one, that the entire shepherd discourse is a direct response to the Pharisees. Number two, the three parables is a contrast between Jesus and the leaders. Number three, within this particular parable, we basically can say, whatever the symbols are, they must remain the same. I think we're, we're, we're good to go with that, okay? All right. Now, they say that there's another approach. Okay, if you want to put this down, you can put this down as number four. They don't put it down as number four, but for us to be to keep things clear, I think we should. In general, symbols in the New Testament are not new. So typically, when you're reading a parable or any kind of symbolic or metaphorical language, if they're using a symbol or a metaphor, it's not new. Even though it's in the New Testament, the symbols and the metaphor usually are found where? In the Old Testament. So everybody got that? In fact, the way I like to think about it, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of that language, you should understand it in an Old Testament context because technically... The New Testament hasn't really started until the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? That's why, why do we, who do we say is the last Old Testament prophet? John the Baptist, right? Okay, so it's always important to realize that because a lot of times we kind of like, hey, when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, forget the old, no, they're still operating in what way? Old Testament way, right? Where do they go to worship? 
The temple. Now, synagogues have been established in kind of the intertestament period, but the temple is still there. Sacrificial system is still there. Sabbath rules are still there. So you've got to, we've got to understand it from that perspective, yes? All right, so this is what they say. In general, the symbols in the New Testament were not new. Jesus and the apostles used existing symbols from the Old Testament or from their culture. In fact, they used things like shepherd, right? Which had been a metaphor for king, uh, been a metaphor for king for at least a thousand years before Jesus used the metaphor here. And this is why the crowd soon ask him if he is claiming to be the Messiah, the expected king. Look at chapter 10, verse 24 of John 10, after he tells all these parables. What does he say? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? Right? So they understand the parable as him possibly making some claim of the anointed one, the Messiah, possibly king, the Messiah king. Because they were thinking Messiah was going to come do what? Rule and reign. So they understood that language in the Old Testament way. He wasn't using new metaphors. Has everybody got that? This line of questioning also confirms that the thief does not refer to Satan. Thief is not used as a metaphor for Satan in the Old Testament. The New Testament or other ancient Jewish literature. In other words, thief is never used to refer to Satan in the Old Testament, New Testament, or Jewish literature. But we show up and do what? Satan. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I established this this morning. I'm going to say it again. Protestants, we talk such a big game. Sometimes, sometimes Protestantism drives me crazy, right? We talk such a big game. We don't want any authority except the Bible, even though it's really our authority and all the stuff that we do. But what drives me crazy is one of our criticisms of Catholicism is that Catholicism relies on oral tradition that's been handed down. And we stick our nose up in the air and like, we're so much better than that. We don't listen to oral tradition. We listen to the word of God. We're better than those Catholics. Ladies and gentlemen, oral tradition is as much alive and well in every Protestant church in this city and every city around us as it is within any Catholic church. Because where does our oral tradition come from? Preaching. 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 And it shows up in commentaries. That's where the oral tradition has been written down because the guy, the commentary, heard sermons and he wrote it down. And a lot of our understanding of Scripture has just been tradition handed down to us that we just accept. So you're a young man. You're going to be like, I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to go into ministry. Well, where do you start learning? Sitting in church. And now, if you never challenge your team and you never question your team, then you just go, oh, this is what we're supposed to believe about this and what we're supposed to believe about this. And then typically, what school do you go to? A school that agrees with your team. And then you just get more reinforcement of your team. And then you go to church and then you give people what? Your team. And the people who come through the door, they know what team your church is on and what do they expect you to give? Their team. And you're now, no one is ever supposed to question 
the team, even though a good portion of the team is based more off, more off oral tradition than it is off the written word of God. But then we go, those Catholics and their stupid oral tradition. We have our same oral tradition. And I will argue Satan ended up in John 10, 10 because of oral tradition that got handed down. Because from a historical perspective, it shouldn't have even shown up, should it? Right? Does that make sense? Now, here, I, now this is where we're going to spend a little time. Okay, we're, listen carefully. All right, everybody ready? All right. Satan, the metaphor of Satan as a thief, is not in the Old Testament, it's not in the New Testament, or any other ancient Jewish literature. However, thief and bandit are used as metaphors for the leaders of Israel in a number of places. Everybody ready? Let, we're going to have to go through these quick. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. Isaiah 1.23. Now, if some of these references are wrong, we'll throw them out, okay? Yeah, Isaiah 1.23. Now, I would like to take time with each reference so that we can verify, 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 but we're just going to have to go quick, all right? All right? Everybody ready? All right, so 1.23, all right? Now, if you go back to verse 21, this is some serious words against Jerusalem and against uh, Israel, right? Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot, full of judgment, uh, righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers, the silver has become dross, the wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Even one loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come after them. Now, this doesn't directly call them thieves, but it's basically saying what? They're friends with thieves. You're, you're, you've got the same mentality as a thief. All right? This is going after the religious leaders of that day. Or maybe you could go with the kings, but it's going with leaders of Israel. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verse 26. Everybody remember our study of Jeremiah, so you should be experts. Yeah. As long as that book is, we've probably forgotten everything about it, including myself. Okay, Jeremiah 2.26, all right? Okay, we'd have to try to go back here for, for context here, but he's, he, this is clearly, we know it's, it's going after Israel over and over and over. And it says, uh, verse 26, As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. So, now this may not say they're directly Thieves, but it says they're going to have the same shame as a thief. So once again, it's at least linking them together. All right? Okay? Not perfect, but it's at least linking them together. Go to chapter 7, verse 11 of Jeremiah. Chapter 7, verse 11. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den den of Robbers and your eyes, behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Now, the, the den of robbers, the temple has become a den of robbers. That's speaking of Israel being likened to as robbers, not Satan. All right, so far so good. Chapter 23. Chapter 23. I'm in chapter 25. That makes no sense. Chapter 23, verse 30. Therefore, behold, I am against thee. The prophet saith the Lord, that steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. That's linking them to being thieves, is it not? Okay. Uh, Now listen, you ready? At least 20 ancient 
Jewish documents describe the ruling Jewish priest as thieves. In fact, Jesus was intentionally, intentionally, you ready for this? Reusing an existing shepherd parable from Ezekiel chapter 34. I kept saying Ezekiel 36 this morning because it's a number. And what is the one thing you know about me? I cannot remember numbers. I do not know why, but I can't. Okay. Right. Ezekiel 34. I don't have a lot of time here. So y'all start skimming uh, Ezekiel 34 and tell me if you see some language that may kind of connect it to what we read in John 10. Okay, we have, we have, he's going to prophesy against shepherds. And, and John 10, he's the good shepherd. The false prophets, right? All right, he says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Who do they care for? Themselves. They don't care for the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which sick. Oh, come on, that's straight out of John John 9. They didn't take care of the blind man, all right? Neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and cruelty, cruelty have you ruled them, and they were scattered. What did they do with their blind man? They kicked him out, because there is no shepherd, and they become meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. What did he say about the hireling? They make they leave the sheep vulnerable to the wolf. This is Literally, Jesus is using Ezekiel 34. All right? Does that, I mean, we could go through the whole thing, right? I think you're going to see over and over and over. Listen to how they describe it. In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the failed leaders of Israel who have stolen from the sheep, killed them, and caused them to become scattered. God says that he will remove these hired shepherds and replace them with himself and David as shepherds. Does anybody see where he's going to say he's going to replace them? In Ezekiel 34, it may take you a while. There's a lot of verses in Ezekiel 34. I don't know how many total verses in 34. Okay. I will remove them. Okay, yeah, so he's going to remove them. So he's going to get he's going to get rid of them, and then does he does it say where he's going to replace them with? And I apologize. Did uh, did I say Ezekiel thirty four? Okay, because she was uh, she was. Okay, all right. Uh, I will now. Now God is establishing who's going to take over. Yeah, God's going to take over. Now does he throw in David anywhere in it? There we go. I will set up my one shepherd. Now, guess what? The people understand what's going on, do they not? Because what do they ask in chapter 10 of John? Go back to John 10. What did they ask? Was it what that verse, uh, remember the verse I gave you to look up? 
when the people come to him, like this is verse 34, I don't know what, uh, it's a number, so don't, don't quote me on it. We read it together. What verse was it? Verse 24. I, I said 34. See, I knew I was going to get the number wrong. Then came the Jews round right about him saying, how long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. See that in verse 34 or 24? You know why they're saying that? They understand that Jesus is giving them Ezekiel. What does Ezekiel say is going to happen? All the bad shepherds are going to be removed. Did Jesus just not speak about all the bad shepherds? Everything that he says about the shepherds and these bad people in in John 10 are the exact same thing he says about them in Ezekiel 34. But he says then what? They're going to be removed and they're going to be replaced. The bad ones are going to be removed and they're going to be replaced ultimately by David or Christ. That they're asking, they understand it. I don't know why Christians can't understand it, but the people there understood it. And let me tell you, whose understanding should we trust? Maybe the people who were there at the time. They know this is coming from Ezekiel. All right? Does that make sense? All right? He condemns the leaders of Israel as thieves and points to himself as the true shepherd. So it is clear that the thief refers to failed human leaders. Why do so many sermons today refer to the thief as Satan? And they ask the question, why? Now, are you ready to go through church history really fast? Well, how did Satan end up in John 10.10? All right, here's what we know. The church fathers all agreed that the thief referred to the failed leaders of Israel, like the Pharisees, or failed revolutionary leaders. Augustine, Clement of Alexandria, uh, I can go through on all these church leaders, all had the interpretation. None of them even suggested that Jesus was talking about Satan. So it was a pretty dominant view. Nobody, nobody questioned it. Now, that's always amazing that they could agree on anything. How is that even humanly possible? I don't know. But it seems to be the case. The, comment, the commenters of the Reformation era up through the 19th century all agreed that the thief referred to failed human leaders and their false teaching. Now, according to this article from Biola University, they were unable to find a single commentary from those centuries that even mentioned the interpretation that the thief referred to Satan. John Calvin, as he explained that the thief referred to false teachers, mentioned that Satan is the source of false teaching, but he did not interpret the thief as Satan. So they couldn't find one. Now, by all means, people can look and see what they can find. I don't care if you find a thousand, okay? Because to me, it's it's irrelevant because the text doesn't go there. But the fact that you can't even find commentaries, that's shocking to me. So what happened? Well, here we go. Are you ready? In the early 1800s and the early 1900s, Many denominations produced Sunday school curriculum and Bible study-oriented newspapers. For example, like the Sword of the Lord and those kinds of things that we would know about. (laughs) The writer says, the amount of obscure documents that can be accessed on Google Books is quite amazing. 
Uh, when the, this curricula is covered, John 10, they nearly always gave the traditional interpretation. The thief represents failed human leaders in Israel, and this can be applied to false teachers today. That's Even in the 1800s and 1900s, they still were kind of going with the traditional view. So what in the world happened? What happened? But there was an interesting change sometime in the mid-1800s. A few devotional books, a few, and some Sunday school curriculum, very much in the minority, no commentaries, began to say that the thief referred to Satan. It appears that they picked up the interpretation. Now, this is going to get complicated. All right, are you ready? You got to follow this. One of these names, I'm probably going to say this so wrong, it's not even going to be funny, okay? But I'm going to do my best. Are you ready? So here we go. In fact, I was going to skip this because I just know I'm never going to get this name right. But here we go. First person that enters the scene is Thomas Aquinas. That is the Aquinas. They only reference him as Aquinas here. Uh, they don't say Th- uh, Thomas, but it has to be Thomas Aquinas because of the dating of the other individual. That's gonna, it has to be Thomas Aquinas, all right? Now, if you know Thomas Aquinas, he was born 1225, and he died March the 7th, 1274. All right? Now, they think this is all hypothetical. I'm by no means claiming this is dogmatic. Okay, everybody hear me? All right? I'm going to go with majorly uh, hypothetical here because sometimes trying to trace the origin of something in history is almost impossible. So this is just a theory. All right? I don't care where it came from, but it is interesting to know possibly where it came from. They don't blame Thomas Aquinas directly. They believe that he misinterpreted an obscure 11th century commentary. All right? By someone by the name of Theophylact. 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 T-H-E-O-P-H-Y-L-A-C-T. Theophylact. All right? Now, Theophylact was born in 1050 in Greece. He died in 1107 in in North Macedonia. The name of the place is Orid, O-H-R-I-D. Horid, Orid, I don't know how you would pronounce it. So Theophylact of Orid, he wrote a commentary in the 11th century that was somewhat obscure. Thomas Aquinas takes this commentary and misinterprets the commentary. This is where it gets weird. Everybody's ready for this? Theophilact claimed that the thief represented revolutionary leaders of Israel and the wolf, look at John 10, 12. Diane was mentioning this, that the wolf was Satan. Now Satan gets into the text. Now Satan gets into the text. He's like, that wolf is Satan. I don't think there's anything there that claims that it has to be Satan. Though that's just, what's the Jesus trying to explain? They're sheep. You don't take care of them. The sheep become vulnerable to wolves. He's just using it in a metaphorical way. He's not necessarily saying the wolf is Satan. He's just saying that they're in danger. Now you could say they could be in danger of Satan, but they're in danger of Satan with or without spiritual leaders. Okay, but we, we could get into a whole 
discussion there. All right? All right? So now listen, okay. Then he said that the wolf, Satan, was like the thief in certain ways. In the process of abbreviating Theophylact's view, Aquinas made it sound like Theophylact taught that the thief was Satan. So Aquinas, see, he's trying to abbreviate it, he's trying to summarize it, and so he kind of makes it sound like the Theophylact is saying the thief is Satan, when he's just simply saying a thief is like Satan. But he's, so he just kind of throws out some ideas. Well, the wolf could be Satan, and a thief is like Satan, and then Aquinas comes along and basically says that he said it is Satan. Well, then someone sees that and like, oh, so that means all the way back in the 11th century, they thought it was Satan, and then the rest starts becoming history, all right? All right, so finally, the view that the thief was Satan began to appear in a few mainstream commentaries in the 1900s. And guess who is the first notable example? Do I? No, Arthur Pink, who is very well respected. Arthur Pink picks it up. You can't trust commentaries. And I probably read something that Arthur Pink said about John 10.10. I probably read it at some point because I had Arthur Pink's commentaries. I probably picked it up and I read, I guarantee you, I probably, maybe even the first place I heard it, or probably heard it in a sermon somewhere, but I I mean, I would have to go, I could probably go through my garage and see if I can find it because I got books everywhere. I could probably see, I'm going to look if I can find it. That would be interesting to go, that's, see, I was an idiot. Shouldn't have been reading books, okay? Right? But, no, I'm joking. All right. But by the mid-20th century, by the mid-20th century, commentaries again began to return to the traditional view that the, re- the thief referred to false leaders. So then there was a switch back. Oh, that's good. Someone's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So the traditional view that Jesus was contrasting himself with the failed leaders of Israel can be seen clearly in the text of John 9 through 10 and was the standard view with some minor variations from the 2nd century to the 19th century. For about one century, 1850 to 1950, some people, including some scholars, thought the thief was Satan. For the past 60 years, almost all commentaries and scholars of John have held the original standard view. So why does the thief prevail in pulpit, or why does Satan equaling, or the thief equaling Satan prevail in pulpits? I suggest that one reason is that many pastors sometimes make interpretation decisions based on oral tradition and then on based on research. We often succumb to the temptation to repeat slogans and interpretations that we have heard instead of studying and consulting careful biblical scholarship. That's how it gets there. That's how it gets there. It's a weird, crazy ride to get there. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how it gets there. Now it's, it's kind of the dominant view. I mean, you can go ask all your Christian friends this week and ask them, and I guarantee they're going to be, oh, that's Satan, that's Satan, that's Satan, that's Satan, that's Satan, that's Satan. And it's like, how can you arrive at that conclusion? And in some cases, when you try to argue that it's not, you'll get pushback. 
And it's like, I don't know why. We, we went through the text. So just remember, this, uh, this is very important. From a Protestant view, we don't care what oral tradition says. If we're going to be fair to the Protestant view, we don't care what oral tradition says. What else do we not care? We don't care what preachers say. We don't care what commentaries say. We're supposed to care what, what Scripture says. Now, that's the strength of the Protestant world. Now, that's the negative part of the Protestant world because we don't care what preachers say, okay? So, therefore, making the pre- preacher really what? Kind of just redundant, right? It doesn't really matter because the preacher is there, only there until you disagree with said preacher and then you go find a preacher that you agree with. And isn't it amazing how much you like a preacher when you agree with them? Isn't that the way it works? So, but, so in the Protestant view, it's good that we don't have to, we're not bound by anything. The bad thing is that we're really bound by what? Ourself, right? Which becomes problematic. But I think textually, you can see, what Jesus is trying to show, and, and, and in some ways, by making it about Satan, and I talked about this this morning, this is what I'll end with, we've really done a really bad thing. Because John 9 and 10 should be a challenge for the church to look at itself and go, are we taking care of the sheep the way we're supposed to be taking care of the sheep? This is a way for the church to examine itself, for religious leaders to examine themselves. But we turn it to Satan, then we don't have to look at ourselves. We can look at the big bad devil trying to get everyone. This is not about the big bad devil hurting the sheep. Uh, abusing the sheep. This is about the religious leaders hurting and abusing the sheep. This is not about what Satan does to the sheep. It's about, if you want to apply it to us, it's about what the church does to the sheep. And in John 9, it's the religious leaders who do, who hurt the sheep. And Jesus has to step in. And he's like, and what is he basically, when he starts talking, what are the people doing? They're basically going, he just won Ezekiel 34 on these guys. He just went all Ezekiel 34 on them. That's messed up. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, Ezekiel 34 says these guys are going to get replaced. Could that be him? So from that dialogue, they look, it's almost immediately after the dialogue, they go to him and say what? Are you the Christ? Just tell us, because you seem like you're hinting at it, because what does he say in, Ezekiel, in, uh, in John 10? I am, I am, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because in Ezekiel 34, who's going to replace? God himself and David. They're, you've got to be claiming it. Okay, well, then get rid of them. In fact, many of the people probably wanted who to go away. Those religious leaders, because those religious leaders were self-righteous and arrogant, looked down upon everyone else, and they placed 9,000 rules upon them, and those people couldn't do anything. There was no mercy or forgiveness. It was do the rules, do the rules, do the keep the law, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. And guess what the people realized? They couldn't keep the law, and Jesus came and exposed the fact that the religious leaders weren't keeping the law. So the people didn't want that. So they were like, yeah, give us something better. That's why they under, they did they weren't thinking about Satan. They knew to them their Satan was the religious leaders. And sometimes it's the church. Sometimes it's the church, it's the religious leaders that really are 
the, neg- the negative thing for the sheep. But we've ruined that because we play Satan there. So we're running around chasing Satan. We're missing on a text that could actually be condemning what the church is doing. Nobody likes that. Look, it'd be far easier for me to say that it's Satan. Right? Be advantageous for every church to point to Satan because then the, the focus does not come on what the church is doing. And you look at how they treat that blind man, there's a lot of correlation between how the church sometimes handles people. We don't want people healed. We'd rather people not be healed so that we can condemn. They didn't want the man healed and restored. They were just, they were mad. So they wanted the man gone. So there's a lot of correlation there. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we thank you for this ability to try to clarify what we failed to do this morning. Lord, there's much to meditate on. Forgive us for where we rely on past ideas for our present study. Help us, Lord, rely on your word and read it and study it to find truth in the present. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,